there's people we get the privilege to minister to and to walk with and live life with every day um, who have been through things in life I never had to go through. And instead of seeing those things as a weakness, you begin to understand that they have a strength in, in their life that has never been asked of me. And what we find is, is when people actually engage in the story of somebody that God is actively redeeming, um, it, it changes everything. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today, we see how God is at work in some of the darkest places in our world, and that even in the most tragic situations, He can redeem those moments for good. Pastors Rob Cowles and Matt Roberts, and forensic artist and author Carrie Stewart Parks. First up, Matt Roberts and Rob Cowles are founding members of the Genesis Project, a network of believers who are working to reach people who don't normally do church. Along the way, they've seen the beauty of forming authentic relationships with others, especially people who are different from us, and the power of telling your true story, flaws and all, to someone else, and still being loved. My name's Rob Coles. I am the founding and lead pastor of Genesis Project in Fort Collins. My name is Matt Roberts. My wife Candace and I have been married for 20 years, and uh, we planted and lead uh, a church called the Genesis Project in Ogden, Utah, and have been doing that for the last 10 years of our life. When I was a young teenager, my family, my dad was transferred for work. Um, I'd lived in uh, the Southeast uh, for my entire life. And so pretty big culture shock for us going from a, a small, uh, very tight-knit Pentecostal church environment in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, showing up to the West. And so uh, as a young teenager, um, as my family began looking for a church, um, I'll never forget showing up to to youth group on a Wednesday night and and meeting Rob there. And so our our stories first really intersected when I was just a really young man, um, still trying to figure out who I was in Christ and and my identity beyond my parents' faith. So for me, uh, my story uh, kind of continued through Bible college. I went to Bible college in in Central Florida to Southeastern University. Um, and uh, Rob and I's story kind of parted for for a few years. We would touch base over the phone just every once in a while. Um, but uh, through that Bible college experience, for me, uh, God really put on my heart this call to plant a church for people who don't do church. One of the, one of the things I realized was that all of uh, my friends that I loved, the the community that I had been a part of my life, it was really hard to invite those people to go to church with me. Um, there was uh, just such a cultural gap in trying to explain like what's going to happen and why we do the things we do and pray the way we pray and sing songs together um, that uh, God really began to birth in in my heart. What would it mean to plan a church, to, to lead a church for for people that was kind of scrubbed of that us and them culture of separation. And um, so that began the journey for Candace and I. We got married at the end of Bible college in uh, 1998 and began to go on a journey of, of really seeing that vision, a church for people who don't do church, come to life. And uh, we were part of a church plant team 
uh, at an inner city church in Portland, Oregon. So we moved all the way across the country in, in 1999 and uh, there for the next uh, four and a half years in Portland were youth pastors. Um, and, and really God opened our eyes there to uh, a world in need, uh, to a lot of big city problems that quite honestly, we had never been exposed to. Uh, both of us had grown up in, in very much middle class uh, everybody kind of had food on the table and a roof over their head. Uh, we're never really exposed to poverty and needs until uh, we were just baptized into a, a community with a lot of needs. And um, and so that time in Portland was very uh, monumental for us in, in really learning what it meant to be an embedded church in the middle of a culture that uh, desperately needed a savior. We really felt God calling us to Utah, and um, we really just left with with no real plan, no funding, no church planning team. Uh, just packed up two little boys at the time, and uh, moved from Denver in a U-Haul truck to Ogden, Utah, and uh, began to pray about what does this look like to plant a church for people who don't do church. And we uh, launched the Genesis Project and um, have have seen God just do incredible things. And one of those incredible things was how God really brought our story uh, back into an intersection with Rob and Joy. And I think for me, uh, the journey kind of began towards Genesis Project when I went to a conference, a leadership conference, and I heard a man named Gary Haugen speak. Uh, Gary Haugen's the founder of International Justice Mission. And I'd never heard of him before, he was kind of this unassuming guy, but his whole talk was about living bravely in the way of Jesus, in the direction of Jesus, and that that how the church in America has kind of settled into this Christian cul-de-sac uh, where we protect ourselves and we, we kind of hide behind this fortress, thinking we're making ourselves safe, but, but don't realize the apathy that it's creating uh, in our own lives. And, and he just kept coming back to what does it mean to live bravely in the way of Jesus? And when the session was over, we went to break, but I just sat in a chair weeping because I, God just began to do something inside of me. Uh, and part of that was convincing me that I had really become pretty safe. And one of the things Gary Haugen said was, Jesus didn't come to make us safe. He came to make us dangerous. And I remember writing just a few months later in, in a journal, at the top of the page, what does it mean to live bravely in the way of Jesus? And it would take a few years uh, to answer that question for me. Uh, and, and one of the answers to that question came when I had some meetings to go to in Salt Lake City, Utah. And so I called Matt because I hadn't talked to him in years and knew I was going to be close and just asked him if I could uh, drive up from Salt Lake, take him to lunch, just catch up. I'd love to hear about his church. And he said, sure, but if you're going to be here anyway, why don't you stay over the weekend and speak at our church? And so I went to Utah, went up to meet Matt. And there were two things about that experience, speaking at uh, Genesis Project in Ogden, that really rocked me. Um, the first one was when I walked into the building, like from the very beginning, I started meeting people for the first time who, who shared their story so freely. They were just so open about talking about their brokenness. Uh, I mean, literally, they would 
people would come up and say, "Hey, my name's my name's Rob. Uh, I used to be a meth addict, and then I then I came here and I I encountered you." And they just would go into this story, sharing these pretty deeply personal things, which was a very different church culture than anything I had ever really experienced before. Uh, I grew up in a church culture that that whether intentionally or not. Uh, kind of fostered a mentality that you, you everything's fine it doesn't matter if you had a major fight before you walk in the building when you come to church everything's good everything's fine you don't talk about your brokenness here and i was experiencing all these people who so freely not only talked about their brokenness but what god had done in their lives and then when the service began uh the worship uh, just brought me to tears, and it wasn't it wasn't because of how great the band was, though they're very talented. It wasn't the talent of the band; it was the raw authenticity of worship, uh, because you knew you're in a room filled with people who had come from the depth of darkness and been brought into light, and they they couldn't not worship. I mean, it, there was just an authenticity about their worship uh, because they really knew what it was to be brought back from darkness, brought back from death into new life. And so I had a great weekend there, wonderful experience. And when I came home, uh, I remember telling my wife about that experience and I, I couldn't tell it without crying. And for about two months, every time I would talk about that church, I would start to cry. And, and eventually I remember telling my wife, I, I need to be part of something that I can't talk about without crying. And it kind of brought me back to why I said yes 31 years ago to be a pastor uh, was to really serve the most broken, most hurting people in our community. And so that kind of began for me uh, this holy discontent in my life that would eventually lead to us planting a Genesis project in the city of Fort Collins. I actually paid my way through Bible college working as a bartender uh, in Orlando, Florida. And one of the things I realized is some of the most real, vulnerable, um, authentic conversations that I'd ever experienced in my life were in that culture, uh, standing on the other side of a bar. And so when we actually planted the Genesis Project, uh, we would kind of joke around and say that our mission statement could be summed up in uh, the theme song to the 80s sitcom Cheers. Uh, that says some, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and your worries are all the same. Um, and, and for us, man, that was a, a really big piece of what we wanted to create. And so we talked a lot about cultivating uh, community. And what we realized is, is that community doesn't happen on accident, um, that we have to actually cultivate and create space where people can come in and, and be real, be open and be honest. And what we realized through that process is there's a lot of church people who are really, really uncomfortable um, with very honest, open community, because when everybody else is being honest, it, it really fights against my sensibilities that church is a place where I pretend and, and put on that mask, put my best foot forward. One of the things we all have in common at Genesis Project campuses is, is a, a coffee shop. And one of the ways that we teach our baristas at our coffee shops at the Genesis Project is that your role is to be a church bartender. 
your your role is to to be able to dive into relationships and begin open, raw, honest conversations with people because story is the beginning of safe community. Yeah, that's good. You know, I think I think actually I, I remember uh, the day that my oldest son uh, told me his words were uh, he said the thing that the church taught me was how to be a hypocrite. And it, man, the words really stung um, because I, it was a realization, I think, even in my own life that I had been a part of a church culture. Um, and I don't think intentionally, I don't think churches intentionally do this, but I think what happens is if you create a culture where it's not safe to talk about your brokenness, to talk about your failure, to talk about your pain, then, then you naturally create a culture where you have to be fake. One of the things we talk about often, Matt and I have talked about in both of our churches, and I think it's probably true in all of our Genesis Project churches, is when people when people come from really broken places, from really whether they're homeless or or battling an addiction or or whatever the past has been, uh, and, and especially when they've been wounded by the church, and they come and they start connecting with people we hear it over and over again people will say this just feels like home to me this feels like home and a lot of them have never known a home feeling even in their biological family and i and i think i think that comes when you value that authenticity you respect the story that people have that it's their story the good the bad and the ugly and and you love them and meet them where they are and begin a journey with them when we first uh, sat down, which was a few years ago now in this process. Um, God had given us opportunities to plant other Genesis Project churches, and uh, we really felt like sharing our story. We have the privilege at our churches of sharing the gospel uh, in what we would contend is a post-Christian world in America today with people that are hearing the true gospel for the very, very first time. And to see how beautiful of a thing it is for somebody to hear the true gospel, not a works-based gospel that they've heard somewhere, not a gospel that is quantified by how much you can give or how much you can offer, but a gospel for the spiritually bankrupt individual that has nothing left to offer, yet God still loves you and offers you everything. And uh, it is so simple, but it is so transformative. And what we see over and over and over again is it still works that people still flock to and respond to the person of Jesus Christ. And we have the privilege to be able to share him in a fresh and new way in our community. And that's the story we want to tell. I think I first learned about Jesus Calling because uh, just in my social network uh, feed, I kept seeing quotes pop up and and uh, raised a curiosity and and picked up the book. And we have so many people at our church that, that have actually passed copies of the book to me, like, man, you have to read this. And um, I think the, the simplicity and, and depth of the book is something that really resounds with, with our churches and with people who come in um, that are, are really fostering a new and fresh relationship with Jesus in their lives. And uh, the one on April 19th is, is one that really spoke to me, and I think captures the heart of, of who we are and what we try to do in our communities. I love you, regardless of how well you are performing. Sometimes you feel uneasy, wondering if you're doing enough to be worthy of my love. 
no matter how exemplary your behavior? The answer to that question will always be no. Your performance and my love are totally different issues, which you need to sort out. I love you with an everlasting love that flows out from eternity without limits or conditions. I have clothed you in my robe of righteousness, and this is an eternal transaction. Nothing and no one can reverse it. Therefore, your accomplishment as a Christian has no bearing on my love for you. Even your ability to assess how well you are doing on any given day is flawed. Your limited human perspective and the condition of your body with its miracle variations distort your evaluations. Bring your performance anxiety to me and receive in its place my unfailing love. Try to stay conscious of my loving presence with you in all that you do, and I will direct your steps. I love the first line. I love you regardless of how well you are performing. I think there's a brand of religion that is so predominant in our world today um, that tells a story of a God who loves us based on what we offer, uh, based on what we bring to the table, based on how well we're doing. And the gospel is a gospel for bankrupt people. Um, it's a gospel for the poor in spirit. It's a gospel for those uh, who have nothing to give and nothing to offer. And uh, a lot of people have been convinced that they have messed up their lives so thoroughly uh, that God could never love them. Uh, that God could never forgive them, that maybe they've wasted too much time and done too many wrong things, that the the bad side of the scale is just too heavy and too full to, to ever do enough good to counterbalance it. And the gospel is just that. It has nothing to do with us, has nothing to do with our performance. It has nothing to do with what we bring to the table. It begins with a God who gave everything when we had nothing to offer in return. And I think there's such a beauty and freedom uh, that we find in that gospel when we step away and, and realize that God loves us because we are His. He loves us because we belong to Him. And man, there's hope in that gospel, right? Uh, there, there's so little hope left uh, for somebody who has made one bad decision after another, who life has caught up to them and they have found themselves in a pit that is too deep to get themselves out of. A, a workspace religion uh, leaves people like that, leaves people like you and I uh, feeling like we can never compensate and never make up for the darkness and the evil that exists in our life. Uh, but the gospel tells a very different story. My love for you is not dependent on what you have to offer me. And man, what a great gospel to reclaim in our world and our generation. Yeah. There's something powerful that happens when you can show up to a place and have no more secrets and know that you're still loved. And that's the power of story and authenticity. Matt and Rob's book, The God of New Beginnings, is available at your favorite book retailer today. Please stay tuned to hear from forensic artist and thriller author Carrie Stewart Parks after a brief message about a beautiful new edition of Jesus Calling that will help you start your daily devotions in the new year in a fresh way. Are you looking to introduce a friend or a loved one to the peace that can be found by spending time with God daily? There's a beautiful new edition of Jesus Calling that makes a gorgeous gift for someone who might be seeking a new perspective for a new year. 
It's the same Jesus Calling Daily Devotional that has inspired over 25 million readers, now updated with a lovely fabric cover and eye-catching foil with feminine floral touches. This elegant new version also features large text and written-out scripture verses with each passage. For more information about this stunning new edition of Jesus Calling, visit jesuscalling.com botanical. That's jesuscalling.com botanical. Now, let's get back to the second half of our program. Carrie Stewart Parks is a forensic artist who talks with people who have been through some of the most harrowing experiences. With warmth and care, she tries to help them close a chapter on that dark moment so they can reach toward the future with hope. Carrie tells us how she found her way into this fascinating career and how she's reaching others through her second career as a novelist. Hi, I'm Carrie Stewart Parks. I am a full-time fine and forensic artist and a law enforcement instructor. I live in the mountains of North Idaho on the same 685-acre ranch that I grew up on. I live there with my husband, six dogs, and I am not sure how many cats. I think somewhere around 18 just because they're feral and they're all the same color. So the only way I know how many cats I have is if I feed them and count. (laughs) My mom and dad were professional people. Dad was uh, the director of the School of Law Enforcement at North Idaho College, and my mom was the high school guidance counselor. So they were basically teachers. Um, they, so they had summers off. And um, it, Idaho is where I live in the mountains near Coeur d'Alene. It's just beautiful. Um, everything is clean and fresh air. It was a wonderful life, except for the chickens. I wasn't really crazy about chickens, but otherwise I had a great life growing up. After high school, I decided I really hated school, but my parents, both having master's degrees, would not hear of my idea of, you know, just kind of hanging out the rest of my life. They felt that I needed to have a purpose of some kind. And so they insisted college. So I thought, well, what kind of college degree can I get that doesn't take a lot of tests and not a lot of studying? And that that was art. After four years of college and four different colleges, I still didn't know what I wanted to be. So I uh, went to work as working for different veterinarians because the one thing you do growing up with animals is you know how to take care of them. And um, I did that. And while I was doing that, my dad, who, as I mentioned, was the director of the School of Law Enforcement, asked me if I would use my art talents to help on, on the crime scenes. We would do everything from crime scene to accident reconstruction, ballistics, um, paint, tool marks, striations, question and alter documents, and all of the different things that we did in this strange new field called forensic, which nobody had heard of, had to be prepared for court. So my initial duties were to hold the stupid end of the tape measure and help measure crime scenes and prepare courtroom trial charts. In 1985, I was invited to go back to the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, and to learn about being a composite artist, which I found fascinating because here was everything I liked to do. Uh, the people I met were wonderful, and one that I met, I um, eventually fell in love with and married. <laughs> so I found romance in the echoing halls of the gerbil trail of the FBI Academy in Quantico. 
When I came back to Idaho, I was the first forensic artist in the Northwest, trained forensic artist in the Northwest. After a few years, some of the officers came to me and they said, well, we want to do what you do. We want to learn how to be a forensic artist. And I thought, gosh, if you do what I do, then I won't do what I do because you're doing what I'm doing. So I don't know if I want to have you do what I do. (laughs) But I thought about it and I thought, well, maybe I do love to teach. Maybe I would be more effective teaching them how to be a forensic artist. And so in 1988, I started teaching forensic art. And uh, eventually my husband, the fellow I met at the FBI Academy, joined me and we became the largest instructors of forensic art in the world. We teach more classes to more agencies in more locations than every other school combined. The very first class that I taught in forensic art, one of my students had a case where our 12-year-old girl was um, assaulted and murdered, and the only evidence they had on her was a single hair. And they knew if they could use this newfangled thing called DNA, they might be able to link someone to that hair. But they first had to have a lead, and so... My student volunteered, or they asked him if he, if he would do a composite sketch, and he said yes. And then they put an ad in the paper saying, was anybody in the area that saw anything at this particular time? Uh, would you please come forward? We need, to, you know, we need to look at this case. And a fellow came forward, and he said, well, I was bicycling through, and I saw this man come out of the bushes. Now, it's been like close to a week. It's been three, four days. Um, since he saw the man and he was bicycling. So it was a very, very brief glance. But the man was able to do a composite sketch with my student, and that composite sketch led them to the identity of Jonathan Gentry, which eventually became the first DNA conviction in the state of Washington. And it was all because of a composite sketch. So my very first class showed me the value of what I was doing. There's that blessing and how it all was going to fit in the grand scheme of things. I am extremely blessed in that my dealings are primarily with the victims or witnesses. So I'm dealing with the after effects in most cases. So from that standpoint, um, I don't have as many, shall we say, nightmares in the sense that I feel that my presence being there, uh, I pray for my victims and witnesses. I pray that I will be salt and light to them as I speak to them. Uh, I wear a cross. I let them know by just having that cross on the outside um, where I'm coming from. Um, I don't say anything to them. I just let the presence of that and... Um, my words to be hopefully helpful. My goal there is to produce a drawing that leads to the identity of the person. But if in the course of our interview, in the course of working it out, they can feel like they, um, they've put this out and they're leaving some of it behind with me. I have had victims or witnesses actually um, hug me when they were all done or ask for a hug, which tells me that that they did feel what I wanted them to feel. I started writing, well, actually I had written five books on uh, drawing and watercolor. They were all called Secrets to Secrets to Drawing Realistic Faces and so on. 
And uh, it came Christmas and I have a girlfriend that I would shop for year round. Now, it sounds like I'm shopping constantly, but I, she was very well off. So she didn't need anything. So I'd try to find the one thing that would be kind of fun. Well, this Christmas was coming around and I had nothing, absolutely nothing to give her. So I thought, well, I'll just write a little story, kind of an adventure story about this uh, fat lady and her, her skinny, beautiful friend, <laughs> which is basically us. <laughs> and uh, it was an adventure. They, they were, they'd go off and they did these, this, that, and the other. And, and it was funny and it was fun. And for me, it was hugely long. It was a whole hundred pages long. So it was just this massive <laughs> manuscript. But I gave her that for Christmas. Well, she started reading the book, the, this this little story out loud to her husband at night. Uh, well, actually, she started off by just reading it and laughing. And he finally said, well, what are you laughing at? And she'd read what I'd written out loud. And um, he listened for a while. And then he called me up and he said, can I come over sometime? And I said, sure. And he came over and he said, he said, I think, uh, you know, given what you gave my wife, I think that you have some writing talent and I would like to teach you how to write. And um, the the wife was Barbara Peretti and the husband was Frank Peretti. So Frank Peretti in 19, uh, no, sorry, 2004 offered to mentor me in how to write. I was the first person he had ever mentored so for the next eight years, I would come over twice a week with all of my bad writing, <laughs> the mess that I'd made the day before, and I would bring a copy of what I'd written for him, a copy for me, and we would go through it. I, I would read it out loud, and he would say, no, no, that's not how you do it. Oh, yeah, that was pretty good. No, you can't do it like that. And he, he in his own words, he said, I'm going to teach you how to fish. So he taught me how to write. And um, he knew that he had faith that I would learn how to do this. And this was, uh, this was uh, so much of God's work because within six weeks of his offering to teach me to write, I was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer. And so while I was learning to write and writing, which I could do at home and so on, um, I was going through surgeries and chemo and... And my mother was dying of emphysema, so I was taking care of her. So it was really a blessing to have this to do uh, rather than other things. Like it really kept me busy. A lot of people think Christian, a Christian book is some kind of, you know, everybody's running through the house chasing each other with knives and guns, and all of a sudden Jesus steps in and says, stop it, you guys, um, you know, be saved. It, it isn't like that. And I don't write my stories from the standpoint of this is going to be a, um, a Bible story. It's going to be a real story. I, most of them are based on my cases. And it also is designed, I, I want Christians to be comfortable and enjoy reading it. But for more than 20 years of my life, I was a Unitarian Universalist. And when I finally came back to being a Christian, um, I had an awful lot of catching up to do. And so I write for people like me. So I write for people that would think like I thought when I was a Unitarian. 
And I would want them to say, gee, that's interesting. Maybe I should look into this a little more. So if you will, I'm not preaching to the choir here. I'm, I'm trying to reach um, the world for Christ, but not by pounding them over the head with the Bible, but with, with something that they could believe in and understand and relate to. My publisher is HarperCollins Christian. This last year, they uh, had a, a get-together, and they handed me this cute little padded book called Jesus Calling. And they said, here, you read this. So my husband was there, so he got one too. So we each got a book. And uh, I started reading, and I thought, well, this is fascinating. I read it as a little extra, like a little boost, if you will, because it's written so positive. And then I ended up giving my book to a, a lady who was just looking into Christianity. And I thought, hmm, okay. I said, you know, I have, I had it with me. I was traveling with it because it's small, fits in my purse. And um, I gave it to her. And um, I thought, well, maybe if it's blessing me, maybe it'll bless her. The passage that I love or that really reached out and touched me came from March 18th. And what I liked about it is the last line is from Matthew 6:34, And that's what my mom used to say to me all the time. But I never, I didn't know it was a Bible verse. But she would say to me, sufficient unto the day is the evil therein. And I'd look at her like, what? What did you just say? Sufficient unto the day is the evil, I think it's the evil thereof. And what she, then she would say, just take one day at a time. Just today is enough for today. And on March 18th, it says, trust me one day at a time. This keeps you close to me, responsive to my will. Trust is not a natural response, especially for those of you who have been deeply wounded. My spirit within you is your resident tutor helping you in this supernatural endeavor. Yield to his gentle touch. Be sensitive to his prompting. Exert your will to trust me in all circumstances. Don't let your need to understand distract you from my presence. I will equip you to get through this day victoriously as you live in deep dependence on me. Tomorrow is busy worrying about itself. Don't get tangled up in its worry ribs. Trust me one day at a time. And that just reaches me so much because in this strange lifestyle that I have, I do have to take each day as it comes, one day at a time, sufficient unto the day are the problems that are there. Don't borrow trouble. Don't worry about, okay, well, what if, what if, what if, what if? And that's what got me through cancer and my mom and everything else is that God had a purpose, God had a reason, and I trust in Him one day at a time. To learn more about Carrie's books, please visit her website at carriestewartparks.com. If you'd like to hear more stories about finding God in the dark places, check out our interview with For King and Country's Joel and Luke Smallbone. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we speak with world champion athlete and Olympian Lolo Jones. Lolo is one of only 10 athletes in history to compete in both the Summer and Winter Olympic Games. And through it all, Lolo has her eyes on the true prize. For God to show me that I can have peace in a storm is much more, is much more powerful to me than a gold medal that's going to sit in my sock, <laughs> sock drawer. Do you love hearing these stories of faith weekly from people like you whose lives have been changed by a closer walk with God? 
then be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Calling Stories of Faith podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review so that we can reach others with these inspirational stories. And you can also see these interviews on video as part of our original web series, with a new interview premiering every other Sunday on Facebook Live. Find previously broadcast interviews on our YouTube channel on IGTV or on JesusCalling.com slash video.